0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host,
1: Greg LeBlanc.
0: Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Didier Bonnet, who is a professor of strategy and digital transformation at IMD, and also former executive vice president at consulting firm Cap Gemini. Welcome, DDA. Oh, I forgot to mention also that you are the co-author of this book right here, Leading Digital, Turning Technology into Business Transformation. Now, Didier, this book is about seven years old, and I think it was about 2014 when I started getting a huge number of requests, particularly from European companies around this topic of digital transformation. So it wasn't simply that they were looking for insight into innovation or into strategy they had something very specific in mind which was this thing called digital transformation and it's been seven years and and you've argued in some places that there's been a lot of hype around digital transformation there's been a lot of misconceptions around it that we've now entered into a second wave of digital transformation. And you've even, I think, made the point that maybe it doesn't even make sense to talk about it because at this point, everything is digital or should be, or at least if you've survived this long, you've probably done something. (laughs) So maybe we should back up and just say, hey, what is it about digital transformation? Why aren't we just talking about innovation in general or strategy in general or good management in general? Why is it that we need to really remind people that... Tech is the biggest story in business, as you highlight in the
1: book. Well, the complexity is, I think, is that we mustn't forget that digital transformation is a business transformation first, which is fueled by a lot of smart technology. But it's a business transformation. And like all business transformation, it's hard to put a boundary around it because it does include strategy and operation improvement and change management. And there's a people angle and there's a so it's kind of a fairly broad in its structure. And this is what led us to the first research and the book was basically, how do we get our head around this as an executive to try to even decide what do I do in my own enterprise? So the idea with the first book was really to put some boundaries and some frameworks to say, how do I even start thinking through this problem so I can start doing some practical things in my organization? But as you say, it, it does span from some good strategy thinking so you come one of the things we've seen over the last decade is people doing digital transformation as a default thing to do you know it's become kind of a corporate fashion statement and i think the if we go back to the principle of strategy you have to make choices uh you have to allocate resources that's what it's all about so the why you're doing it to me is still as important today as it ever was but then you of course have the technology which is In the middle of all this, and it's incredibly important because obviously you cannot do digital transformation without making smart investment in the technology itself. But if that was the only part of transformation, then the richer company would always win, right? (laughs) Whoever has got more capital to invest in technology will win. And it's not what we found in the research. We found that the second dimension, which was equally as important, is this notion of how you actually transform your organization for this technology. So how do people work differently? How do my processes evolve? And really, that was the kind of the start of thinking for a framework that could help executives to get going on this journey of transformation.
0: The first step, in you have sort of a playbook, which I liked to, but the first step in the playbook is really about creating awareness of kind of what the challenge is. And you mentioned that a lot of companies will maybe take their senior executive team and run them through some experience, right? Some immersion experience where they get this shock and awe. I like to think that that's part of what I do with companies that come to Silicon Valley is you give them a shock and awe and say, oh, look at this and look what, but typically what, what you'll do sometimes is you'll show them, well, this is what Google's doing and this is what Amazon is doing. And this is what Facebook is doing or Salesforce. But you target, you say, look, 95% of the companies out there are not those companies and they're never going to be the, those companies. And so for those companies, laying out what the challenge is, right? How do you do that? How do you tell them, hey, look, here's what you need to think about. Here's what you need to look like. You need a vision. This is what you need to look like in the future. But it's not necessarily, you're going to look like Google. How do you build that awareness? And then how do you also emphasize that this is really a leadership challenge as much as a technology challenge?
1: Yes, you're quite right. I think part of the I guess the awareness part was more important when we started the research some six, seven years ago. I mean, today, pretty much every executive I meet, you know, within five seconds, you're talking about digital transformation. And I think as you mentioned earlier, it's got to the point where, you know, is it actually meaningful because you have people who provide cloud software services claiming to be doing digital transformation. You have automation company claiming to do digital transformation. So everyone is doing digital transformation to the point where I think it's lost a little bit of its meaning to some extent. So I think I'm always arguing for going back to first principle to say okay what what do you actually do on monday morning and and i think all the points you raise about raising awareness by taking executives to silicon valley or or wherever i think we've seen a lot of that and i've seen great successes and to some extent more tourism than than leadership change (laughs) because it's as you say companies like google and apple probably have dedicated departments to nowadays to receive these people, you know, so you're not looking at companies that were created like you. And, and this is a reason why in the book, we excluded startups and we excluded tech company, not because we don't love them, but because we wanted to focus on company who have a heritage and a large legacy, whether it's processes, people, culture. Some of these companies are over 200 years old. So we wanted to see how do you actually move? tankers towards this digital world rather than try to say, you know, the usual Googleize yourself or become Uber or you know, all these kind of slogan that we've heard uh, over and over. And as you brought that, it's very hard because how do you start thinking of a strategy for your digital transformation if you're an executive that has very little technology understanding? So I think that's where the education and the leadership becomes really important. And I would say, It's even true for boards of directors, you know, I mean, you find on boards of directors, people that have really never been exposed to some of these technologies. So I think that to me, where the learning is important from a leadership perspective is not become a a technologist, but at least have a a good understanding of what this technology can do for your business and how how you can improve your business. And that's really why I have seen some successes in some organization where the entire board has actually been to some of these bedrock of innovation, whether it's in uh, California, but you know, some people go to Asia nowadays to, to have the same sort of experience. So this immersive experience are really useful. I would say the most useful I've seen is when you have time to debrief amongst yourself as a team. So you can really distill what does it actually mean for us? We're in the you know pharmaceutical business. Uh, what have we learned from this great innovation? And I think the way that, back to your questions earlier on, the way that it differs from innovation, I mean, there's a lot of innovation in digital transformation, that's what it's all about, but the way it differs is that you, it's not really a function or a department or an activity where you can put boundaries for the reason I explained earlier on, that it's, if you truly try to transform the business, then it should touch everyone from your manufacturing processes, to your HR processes, to your people themselves. Uh, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of why it's a difficult endeavor. And I think you picked up on the leadership message. I think that one of the main founding we heard in the early days of uh, a lot of experts that were telling us that digital transformation will happen bottom up. We had a uh, bring your own devices, head edge innovation, and all the people would innovate within organization and force the managers to change their practices. We found actually zero example of that, not one in the companies that we looked at, which was about uh, 400 uh, large organizations. And so all of them, all the successful cases we saw were really truly led from the top. It doesn't mean that it's not useful to have mavericks and people who try things within your organization, but unless it's really led from the top in a sustained way, it's very hard to see how you can be successful.
0: Yeah, I thought that was an interesting point because a lot of people talk about the digital organization as one that is decentralized where an innovation an idea can come from anywhere and it can bubble up and everyone's in small two pizza teams and the building blocks are all assembled and disassembled. And and yet in order to get to that place, you need this, this very, very strong leadership. And so I want to get into that. I want to get into your two by two, but before we move on from this idea of awareness, how is it possible? I mean, I know obviously everyone's aware at this point, but how is it possible that people could take so long to figure out which way the wind is is blowing? I'm always a little bit surprised and perhaps it's just because I'm in an educational institution and so I'm constantly surrounded by a, a new batch of students every year. So I guess I, I get to see what's happening, but how is it possible that you can be in, in the senior leadership of an organization? and be so isolated from the currents around you. You know, I remember reading a a book many decades ago about the board of directors of General Motors, and they were oblivious to what was happening in Japan. And is this just a dereliction of duty? Is it just that these people are old? (laughs) Like, you're in the business of education, you run these programs, and how do people ever get to the point where they are... Head in the sand. How does that happen? And, you know, how can you build? And if you've solved this problem, how do you make sure that the leadership team doesn't then get comfortable with what their new creation looks like and forget to figure out that this is a process that's ongoing?
1: I think it's when it comes to the board. So we actually teach a program which is digital for boards of directors. And what we find is a lot of these people are actually, although they may not be, so there's surely, I'm sure, a concern there somewhere. But I don't think it's a main impediment i mean we've seen some board members that come on our program that are incredibly curious so and i think that would be one of the key characteristics that i would put on a good board member is just be curious you know go and and dig out what's going on i think the other thing that doesn't help is and this is different by country but certainly in most country you have this strong separation between the board of directors and the actual executive management and i think if you want to understand the digital world you need to reconnect the two because the board is supposed to actually maybe not design but at least approve and vet the strategy of the enterprise and guarantee its survival so i think there is a duty for board of directors to really not only look at it from afar but really start investing and questioning management constantly about what they're doing on digital transformation and monitoring progress and so on and so forth and that's and i think some firms i think the mistakes that was made in the early days because of course there's the composition of the board is important is you know to do the usual let's go somewhere uh, let's go hire somebody from google and then we'll be done and we know that didn't work over the years because many companies did that and and that doesn't work so you need to to have a certain contingent of people on the board that are digitally savvy that can help the other not the whole board because the boards have other commitments in terms of financials and auditing and security and so on and so forth. But you do need to have a contingent of people that are very aware of what this world is all about to really guide properly uh, a firm.
0: Do you think boards in general are too willing to take the assurances of the management team at face value, right? Because a lot of people say that managers, their job is to create comfort for themselves, right? Their, Their job is to build an environment where they can relax. And uh, the board job is to prevent them from ever relaxing. Do boards kind of take things at face value too much?
1: But some do, I'm sure. And very often it's because they're being blinded by this tech talk that people throw at them. That's what we teach on the course is basically, you know, what are the right questions to ask your executive team in order to really uncover what they're truly doing? And, you know, if they come to you with, here's our new blockchain strategy, that's not a good start. Just say, why are we doing this? What is a business problem we're trying to solve? And all this kind of questioning, I think, is essential. So I think that's probably the reason. And then you have also differences by sectors. You know, there are some sectors that have been so attacked or impacted by the digital world, like financial services, for instance. There are others in, you know, chemical processing, for instance, where it's taking a little bit longer. So I think there are differences in how urgent it is to really truly understand this field by a different sector of industries.
0: Now, I think you, you cite a statistic. I think you say 87%, but there's lots of different numbers being tossed around. But you say 87% of digital transformation initiatives fail to meet expectations. Is that a problem of having expectations that are too high? Do we raise expectations too high? Or is it really a problem of a failure to implement or execute the, the transformation properly?
1: I think a bit of both. I think people, again, I think one of the problem there is people, the minute they make the investment in the technology, thinks the job's done, right? And they tend to really underestimate the transformation part. So everybody focuses on the digital rather than on the transformation. And for anybody who's done a, or looked at business transformation in organization, it's always the people and the organizational side that's the most difficult to crack. And so people tend to have Higher expectation, or used to have a lot of high expectation about what this technology were going to do overnight, without really thinking about the adoption. you know an example would be you know if you remember the wave of corporate social networks that was going on with plenty of really good products that were on the market to do that. And it was, let's do a Facebook within the enterprise kind of thing. Or even Facebook is doing one. You put this system in, in your corporation and you will see a lot more collaboration a- a amongst your employee. And of course, then came the deployment, the technical deployment of the tools. And most firms that I've seen, and I've seen probably half of them succeeding and half of them failing, and the difference was and that was basically launched very quickly and the idea and and potentially i think also what the vendors were pushing is the one who failed basically focus only on the deployment So he was like, okay, we've deployed the tool in 87 countries. Check the box. Check the box. Job done. And then you go and talk to the users in these 87 countries and they say, what the hell is that? You know, is it replacing email? Is it, you know, what is it? And the company that did succeed are people that spend as much on the technology as they did on the adoption, which is basically creating community, having community managers that actually on a daily basis manage that. So they put the investment on the adoption as well as the technology. And that really what made the difference. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in uh, that the expectations where you put the tool in place and that's it, adoption will happen. And we know that this is not the way it works. Now, we've seen a big change, which out of the unfortunate pandemic we've been through right now is that the adoption is actually of these tools, at least as has increased tremendously because there's no other game in town so even people that were highly resistant to productivity tools like video calling or file sharing or whatever had to actually do that but generally i think in the past some of these mistakes were really due to this dichotomy between deploying the technology and getting it adopted
0: yeah and the importance of leadership is cannot be underemphasized and if you're not a leader, if you're someone who's a contributor or lower lay on the organization and you're trying to proselytize for different tools, it's very difficult. I mean, I've been at a university for a long time and I spent probably six years trying to, seven years trying to get everybody to use Google Calendar, trying to get everybody to use Dropbox, trying to get everybody to use DocuSign. I mean, just like simple stuff. And it's just, there's a level of resistance, which is just unfathomable. And so, but you talk about this idea of the BYOD and you mentioned the fashionistas in your two by yeah. two. And you say, this is like... Christmas tree with lots of little ornaments. And again, I would not be, I would be very disappointed if there wasn't a single two by two in your book. So I'm glad you, you had this one. It was, I think, a very helpful one. So maybe you could walk through this the kind of tech axis and the leadership axis and how, where do you see companies now compared to where you saw companies back in, in 2014. In 2014, it was very clear that companies that did both tech piece and the leadership piece were outperforming the ones that didn't either. Is everybody in the upper right box now?
1: I don't think so. Unfortunately, I would say that although you'd think, as you mentioned earlier, you'd think, but we should drop the term digital transformation because everything in this is digital and everyone should be transforming, right? But unfortunately, that's not what I'm experiencing even today with some of the clients I work with are still struggling to put this transformation in place. And part of it is really more to do with the leadership and change side than it is with the technology. It's very rare that the the technology just doesn't work or it happens that it's maybe too complex to implement or too expensive. But the main failures are usually on the second dimension, which is how do you actually affect change in your organization? And and back to, to your question about the matrix, I think what we're seeing today, so we had beginners as a, at the bottom left corner of the matrix, if you remember, I think we're seeing Less beginners, because a lot of people have actually tried to do something. I mean, it'll be be, uh, hard to be oblivious to what's going on today, given the amount of press that's given to digital transformation. But there are still a few firms that are starting, or have been fashionistas in the past. Basically, fashionistas are the companies that are investing and putting all these shiny objects on the christmas trees and and the strategy is usually you know let a thousand flower bloom and then we will pick the stuff that works and we'll scale it and what you usually find is this you end up with a thousand totally disconnected ventures lots of duplication similar type application developed on different platforms so it becomes a big mess basically and and a lot of these companies are restarting so uh, i'm seeing a lot of uh, companies doing a sort of a digital transformation restart because they went down that route of saying, oh, we're very decentralized. Let the business unit decide what they want to do. And then you end up with this, you know, spaghetti of initiatives that, that really don't make any sense for the business. Because as I mentioned earlier, if you don't have a very clear why you're doing it, then it becomes just uh, experimentation. And there's a little bit of that. I have clients that are running two, 300 proof of concept at any one time. The amount that actually gets scaled is very small because scaling is obviously the most difficult. And the problem is the business case is not in the minimal viable product. The business case in the scaling part. So if you never get to that scaling part properly, then people don't see a return. And very often, you know, the business managers don't see a returns and they say, okay, we've tried it, it failed, it doesn't work. And then you're actually backtracking into your transformation rather than moving forward. And then we have these funny categories called the conservatives, which are people that are usually pretty good at the change side, but they can't scale to the rest of the organization. And usually this is where the leaders are not strong enough to really push top down a formal program of transformation. And we've seen companies, I think in the book, we used Asian paint, which is a fantastic company, it's the biggest uh, coating company in Asia. And they did a, an amazing job in the supply chain. Everything that people would like to see in the supply chain, which is this visibility end-to-end between supply and demand, but they could never scale that to other departments and other function and other processes, and it actually took a change of CEO to make it happen. So that's beginners, probably less than before. I'm still seeing a lot of, a few conservatives, people that are struggling to get their leaders or their leadership team engage into this transformation, seeing a lot of fashionistas, probably more than what we had at the beginning of the research, that people that are resisting a little bit to put any programs and governance around their transformation and therefore end up with all these disjointed and disconnected programs. And I think the interesting question is, do we have many more digital leaders than, or digital masters, as we call them, than we had six, seven years ago? I, I would suspect so. but. Uh, not that many, proportionally, I would say. So I'm thinking if you're in the lower left and you want to get
0: to the upper right, you know, what's the best path, right? Do you go through the fashionista path or the conservative path? And
1: Yeah, so that's the interesting thing. I don't think there is a linear path between all these. Both. So in other words, you can jump straight from a beginner to a uh, digital master. So a good example, which I think we described in the book, was Burberry. Burberry was not a technology company, not particularly brilliant at either change or not technologist, uh, they're in fashion. But Angela Ahrens at the time, who was the CEO of Burberry, did a tremendous job leading that transformation because although she wasn't a technologist, she really truly understood what was going on in the outside world. And she was targeting the young, wealthy individuals. And these people were using, you know, social media and things like that, so she had to adapt to targeting that particular population. So there was a real business reason to do it and and she jumped straight from beginner to to digital masters i mentioned asian paint who jumped from conservative straight into digital masters yeah there are people who jump from fashionistas you know i mean we use and i use uh nike as a an amazing example but i remember nike back in the late 2000s was truly a fashionista i mean they had people doing social listening in the marketing department they had people doing custom manufacturing with digital tools. There's a the people doing CAD CAM and custom design You know, it was all kind of disconnected. And it's only when they created that digital plus units, which sort of integrated all the digital skills that the sort of magic started happening for Nike. So I think you can move from, to be a digital master from each angle, and there's no linear path, if you will, that will take you from a beginner to a conservative, to a fashionista and to the others. But you do need a strategy to realize, you know, number one thing is realize where you are and what the characteristics of your organization are, whether it's centralized or decentralized, and then put a plan together to actually move to the right area. So you've worked with
0: Capgemini for many years, and I think Capgemini is well known for its work around technology and IT. And it works very closely with kind of CIOs, CTOs within organizations. And one of the criticisms of IT departments, and in the book, you talk about the alignment between the business and the IT. One of the kind of criticisms of a lot of IT departments is that they're conservative and that they're very reluctant to add new tools, perhaps part of it's budgetary, but part of it's process. And if we look at kind of the adoption of SaaS tools in American companies that I'm more familiar with, it seems like the companies that went furthest quickest were the ones that kind of did a work around the IT groups, right? So you know, we think about something like a Salesforce or a workday, and a lot of times these were just business units or functional areas that got frustrated with IT groups. So you talk about the importance of a, of a chief digital officer in a lot of companies. So why is this role necessary? Why can't the CIO just be the CDO, right? What, what is the What does it do when you create this new position to direct these efforts?
1: I think so on the chief digital officers, I I don't think you need to have a chief digital officer to succeed. I mean, I've seen organization where the traditional IT and the digital IT were actually part of the same unit led by very transformative CIOs who did a a great job. You have like a dual track IT. A dual track IT. And I think we had this debate over the last few years about this dual IT. So you have a separation between the traditional IT usually focused on the back office at Systems of Record, and then you have this digital IT focus on all the fun stuff, which is to do with your customer experience, payments, and all this kind of thing. And I'm not sure over the long term whether this separation is actually sustainable, because, and what we've seen for the people who have done this kind of construct, You know, at some point, particularly now that data has become at the center of all these applications, at some point you got to get the data out from your customer bases and you're going to have to go and meet the traditional IT person and say, please, could you uh, help me to connect that back to the standard system that we have or the databases and so on and so forth. So I think it's a bit, you know, I've seen corporation dividing by back office and front office and most of these models are okay to start. So you get the momentum going. But in the long term, it's not clear to me whether that's a model that's sustainable. And to the people that were trying to go around uh, IT, and I heard people saying, you know, we're going to do it without or despite IT. I think most of these people would have failed over time because there is a technology component that is complex. We are talking about, or at least in our research, we were talking to corporations that have got huge legacy systems. That needs to be evolved and therefore the architecture of what you're building needs to be really thought through in combination. Now, there are still problems between, and we've lived through that in the last few years between the, the old cascade process versus the DevOps and all this kind of stuff. And, but I'm not sure it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure necessarily if you have the right mindset in your IT leadership, you can probably cope with both and I've seen a lot of people doing that now the, the chief digital officer can be very useful when the person is an accelerator of a digital approximation and i think we documented that you know adam broadman when he was at starbucks for instance did a fantastic job sitting between i.t and marketing and basically connecting the two and building a portfolio of digital solutions that was extremely successful over a large number of years. But it's not, you know, I've read too many papers saying, you know, unless you have a chief digital officer, you will fail. I don't think that's true at all. I mean, I, equally, I can, I can't mention name, but I can give you two or three, you know, I have two or three examples of people, CEOs that were asking me, that were telling me, I've just hired a, a chief digital officer because my IT and my marketing are fighting. And my answer was usually, oh, great. Now you've got three people fighting rather <laughs> than two, you know? Right. <laughs> so I think it's not the panacea. and I think. If you look at the role over time, it's a role that is designed to disappear, right? I mean, some of the research we did at IMD shows that the lifespan of a CDO is two and a half years, so it's not long, because you could go a number of routes. You can either become a the evangelist that no one listens to, so you carry your PowerPoint deck around the organization. and No one's doing anything, or if you're really going down the execution, then you need some decision rights, you need some budget, you need some staffing, and you also need extremely good interpersonal skills to connect with the business unit. And that's why whenever I coach or consult some of my clients on building the digital team, I always say you know, don't just hire the bright young people that understand everything about digital, hire some of the people that have been in the organization for 20 years. Because they will learn a lot about digital, but also they will help you to maneuver through the organization from a political and emotional and whatever other angle. So you need this mix of people to be successful. I would say, particularly in complex organizations that are highly decentralized, you know, where you really need to maneuver very carefully through your digital transformation.
0: I've always thought that within IT groups, you need to have anthropologists who really understand kind of how things work and what are the problems that people are trying to solve and really good listeners and process people. Then you needed someone who is really good with the numbers who could figure out, is this a make or a buy, right? Is it something we need to build or something we can procure and figure out all the different solutions that are out there? And then you need to have someone who can like do the integration and design the interface and create that internal kind of platform and then you need people who are like educators who go back out and tell everybody like okay here's what we now have and here's how you use it and here's how you make great value out of it but when you look at the kind of people that are hired into it groups like the you know the anthropologists and, and the educators you know you don't see it necessarily a lot a lot of people that are recruited for those skills and then even like the kind of the people who are good at assessing the make or buy decision, which is one that requires good accounting operations, finance skills, you know, those are often lacking. Do you think we need to rethink the IT role as something that is less de-emphasized the technical and re emphasize the business side and the people side?
1: I think we saw a lot, when we looked at successful company, we saw a very different way of operating between the technology side and the business side. And question, and I think you're totally right. I'm a hundred percent convinced that if you take an area like uh, a customer experience, for instance, if you want to do a really good customer or redesign your customer experience, you do need design skills. You do need the, the quants that are going to understand the numbers. You do need integration skill and you need anthropologists that people have empathy with how a human being actually reacts to a certain situation. My question in answer to yours would be maybe. I'm not sure whether you should put, you know, necessarily put that all in one department or you should change the way you work. A little bit what these agile programs are trying to do, you know, is how do you build uh, multifunctional skills as a natural way of operating within an organization rather than what we had before, which is, well, the marketing guys have got an idea and they're going to spec it and throw it all over the world to IT, which we know is a process that doesn't both very well in the digital world. So I would tend maybe to more emphasize, change the way you work and crack a problem with these teams that are put together to solve a certain business problem and then disbanded, go back to your own department. Now, I know when, and some companies are pretty good at that uh, because they've really understood that agile and agility is not about just running an agile program but about making your company and the way you work more agile and this is something that a few companies have done but those who have done it are, are you could see it in the way they work even the language you know i mean you put a, a marketing person and a, an i.t person and a manufacturing person in the same room and it'll take an hour before they figure out what a click-through is or what there's a language issue that needs to be broken and i think the firms that are most mature in digital you you see this ability to really put these cross-functional team together self-forming around a business problem saying okay what kind of skill set do we need and where the leadership comes in is having the the ability to let these guys go loose under control if you will you know so to give me the objective here's a budget here's a timeline and then let you know let them go a little bit and create and be innovative and the problem sometimes is in the management processes it's also in the leadership there's a lot of leaders that are still in the kind of mold of operation that if I don't control, my job is not worth it. You know? So I think that's really, for me, would be a better solution is rather than try to house all this skill set in different um, departments, if you will, to say, okay, the quants will be in IT, the anthropologist will be, and the behavioral science guy will be in marketing. He's trying to say, okay, it doesn't ma- really matter where they are. Is can you assemble these teams quickly and have this, the ability to really assemble this resource pool to solve particular problems very quickly. And then they can go back into their, their own. It has a huge amount of HR implication, as you can imagine. And and I know a lot of the HR directors I've talked to about that don't like it very much because it, you know, is who's the boss, who's going to do the review. And there's loads of micro problems, but I think it's a way to go. And if you look, if you observe small to medium sized firms, this is how they operate. I've never met a startup that spent hours talking about the relationship between their it and their marketing for instance so i think we ought to learn a little bit from that about the um you know self-assembly of cross-functional team to solve specific problems and having this ability and agility to really be able to do that on a constant basis yeah.
0: now one of the things i liked about the book was you highlight some of the trade-offs that are being disrupted or challenged by these new developments. And when I talk about digital transformation, I often talk about how some of the trade-offs that we learn in a classical operations class are being upended, whether it's EOQ models or news vendor models or all those, you know, traditional models where you have to trade off one bad thing versus another bad thing. But you highlight three of these. One is the standardizing versus empowering, controlling versus innovating and orchestrating versus unleashing. And those three kind of trade-offs are ones that we talk about all the time in kind of organizational design, in business process design. And you highlight that we can now have have our cake and eat it too, so to speak, or at least the cost trade-off is now being pushed downwards and we can kind of get the benefits of both. I was wondering if you could talk about that, maybe pick your favorite one and explain exactly how it is that these trade-offs are being upended.
1: Yeah, I think it was, it came to our mind really because looking at the traditional organizational academic papers and books that we've all grown up with, and the, it's really a story of opposition, you know, I'm centralized or decentralized. I am controlling or leaving autonomy to the people. And, and, you know, we kind of challenge that when we start looking at companies that were doing digital transformation well, and I'll give you an example. We worked with these fantastic retailers in Japan. So we talk to them a lot about organizational construct and design and things. And they say, look, it doesn't matter. They say, we leave total autonomy to the people in the stores because if the store manager was usually was a 30 to 40 year old person, if the store manager does something wrong, we will let him know within seconds because we can see all the data. And that's really one of the, the answer is if your data flows are properly organized, you can actually let loose really easily because you're never lo- you never don't actually lose control. In the old days, it was like, let them loose and pray. Today, you don't have to do that. If somebody somebody would have a dashboard, I mean, these guys are, they had dashboards about all the other stores in their area and seeing how much they were selling by categories. So they could course correct, say, well, I must be doing wrong. I must be putting the wrong thing on the shelves. So all the, you know the information was gave the ability to to the management to really let loose let these guys try innovate change things but it wasn't about let loose and pray he was let loose and we can see what's going on and we can inform them about what's going on and so i think there's a lot of that which is happening right now because of this data flow that not all companies are able to do that but those who are i think are able to start changing the nature of their organization and how they give autonomy to people in the field. And when that works, as you well know, you know the autonomy also create job satisfaction, but therefore retention is a whole pile of uh, secondary effect in organization and people that is actually really positive.
0: Yeah, the trade-off that we talk about a lot is rules versus discretion. And uh, one fun fact that I learned in the book is that the um, origin of the word governance the original Greek word meant to steer, and I had forgotten that. And so this is like steering with, with a loose rein. You're exactly. keeping constant tabs on the horse so you know where it's going. And if it goes the wrong way, that's when you kind of jump in and do some steering. But you use this term over and over again, digital governance. How do you think about that
1: term? Why is this so, so important? So we use that term primarily because people were too focused on project and program management in a very mechanistic way using tools and how many tasks and it was just programmatic. And what we saw in the companies who were successful is there was a layer of management or governance, uh, whatever we call it. But the purpose was really to try to crack the standard or traditional problems that all the organizations have. So as you know, when you're trying to uh, deliver a digital solution, as we discussed earlier, you need uh, IT people and operations people and a finance person, and you need to coordinate all these people that traditionally in organizations sits in silo, right? And I think the purpose of governance in a digital transformation is really to try, how do we make it easy to Cut across the silos, whether they're functions, geographies, or whatever else. And that's really something that really, um, I would say, demarked the companies that did that well from the others. I mentioned uh, Nike earlier on. When Nike put all this skill set together, the people that do social listening with the people that are designing shoes to the people that can actually produce them in a factory, then suddenly magical thing happened customizing shoes was able to do that there was a funny example they told us about social listening in uh, in actually in south l.a where the kids were stopped wearing laces and it was a fashion all these kids were walking around with shoes without laces this took it off and of course the manufacturing guy said well that's really easy to do you know let's try to do a a few lines of this shoe." so this is It's about how do you connect the dots between people that have got their ears out there, try to understand what the customers are doing and and what they want and the people that can actually produce all of this. And I think that's, to me, uh, a big key to succeeding in this program is really try to have, to facilitate the problems that we have in traditional organization. Before we all become digital companies, we're still organized in pretty traditional ways. And in fact, I really believe and we're not there yet that the next wave of digital transformation will probably be much more about organizational innovation than it will be about digital innovation and the reason i'm saying that is because of course the flow of technology will continue to happen engineers and inventors are doing their job of inventing stuff and they're doing a great job so we'll see this continuous flow of amazing technology coming but Unless we start adapting our organization, it's going to become very hard to work efficiently and adapting, meaning, you know, despite what everybody says, oh, my organization is really agile, blah, blah, blah. You you go inside the organization and it's pretty much the old structure with the command and control, middle management, filtering and so on and so forth. And I think that's, you know, if we want to go to this self-forming, multifunctional team type of model that I'm describing, we need to start changing that. And it's a big ask because you need the leadership that wants to try, wants to experiment. I am also not a great fan of this kind of, everything will be flat, there will be no bosses and, you know, everything's going to happen, you know, there are things that will remain like leadership, people want to have a boss and, and some people would like to be told what to do, so that's not going to change. But I think the way we structure and orchestrate organization is going to be very different, as are the kind of skill sets that we inject in various departments. You know, the, one other the thing I saw in many uh, organizations that over time, the marketing department changed from being 90 percent creatives to 90 percent quants so still have a lot of creative skills but the data became so fundamental to some of these businesses particularly in, in b2c but also in b2b that the skill set had to change and if you think about what's going on with ai nowadays and, and the ability to optimize pretty much every process that we have in an organization i think those skill set will start uh, meshing into not just the it or, or whatever department but into The skill set the fundamental skill set of doing management in an organization
0: i totally agree with you i think if i was trained as an historian and if described the history last couple hundred years you can describe it in terms of oh we have the steam engine and then we have electricity and then we have data centers and so forth or you can describe it as you know the evolution of firm structure both kind of firm boundaries and how they vertical and horizontal integration happened but then also in terms of the internal structure and the emergence of the M form organization and like DuPont and, and the, you know, Alfred Chandler writes about, and then the emergence of these newer forms. And so a couple questions on that. First of all, with respect to the corporate organizational boundaries, you've emphasized that digital transformation begins with the customer and the understanding of the customer journey and understanding customer preferences. And then this kind of flows backward into the organization. But a lot of companies, they don't really have access to high quality first party customer data if we look at like cpg companies and so forth you know they're flying blind a little bit does this mean that they have to integrate in such a way that they can get access to the customer or do we think that the current structure can remain but there'll be like better information sharing i mean one of the things about walmart that was so special 30 years ago even was that this information flow went back to cpgs and so forth so are we going to see i talk about the data wars in my classes about how every company is trying to leapfrog the other companies to make sure that they're the ones that are sitting at the place where they can get the most data and integrate the data how will corporate boundaries have to change in order to get access to the data that they need
1: so in a couple of ways i think the so the problem you're describing is absolutely current and it's a fundamental b2b problem and whether you're in uh, Car manufacturing, so where your resellers have got all the information about customers, whether you're in insurance, where it's your brokers have got all the information, that, you know, or CPG, where it's all the retailers that have that the information is, is a very recurring theme for organizations. What I've seen is, so there are still a lot of people that are resistant because the way that it's presented is, I'm going to start stealing your customers or I'm gonna go direct to customers to sell them the same thing that you're selling, and maybe even cheaper. So your margins will be destroyed, and your business will be destroyed. Rather, so I would say adversarial, yeah, type of relationship between what they're trying to do. And and I think every time I've seen a a small solution, it was more the opposite. It was more about, and I've, I'm seeing that today in uh, in a couple of car manufacturing companies where, if you, you can imagine that. They had very little data apart from doing the usual surveys or focus group and stuff, which we know the the validity of is not a hundred percent because the intermediaries had all the power, right? They had all the power and all the data and all the conversations, but- Unless you're Tesla. Yeah, but if you think about even traditional car manufacturers, they are getting a ton of data now from connected cars and they could have easily said, okay, well, now that we've got all the data, we are got to go direct and who needs to have intermediaries that basically all they do is show you the car in the showroom and help you to drive for 15 minutes and then, you know, that the value add. And they're actually doing something slightly different, which is to do more of a data integration with their intermediaries to basically say, we have enough data to help you reduce your inventory, for instance. And I've seen these examples already in practice today where the car company can actually tell a retailer, you know, if you're in South Paris, you're most likely to sell black and gray cars, engine size 1.6 to 2,000. So don't bother stocking all these red and yellow cars because you'll never sell them. So you're actually helping the reseller to sell more. And I'm seeing that today in a couple of insurance companies as well, where there are not trying to bypass the intermediaries, they're trying to help and connect their data with that of the intermediaries so everyone can win. Because if the intermediaries sell more, well, you'll, as a company, you will sell more. So that's more the model I've seen than the kind of adversarial, you know, we're going to try to take you on and, and go direct in B2B at least. Now, when it comes back to boundaries, the, the second part of your question, I think that's a big, you, you're, by the way, I, I'm not a historian, but I totally value the ability to look at long cycles you know where because of what we read in the press and things everyone thinks everything's happening in six months and you know it changes things but it's it's sometimes useful to do to look at history because what we find and what you've just described earlier on was like after every big technological shift we have seen a shift in organization and that's why i was saying earlier on i think the next move is going to be more about organizational innovation than it is about technology innovation because we haven't quite seen that yet. And and your example of the what happened when we moved from steam engine to electricity? Well, you, could take, you can go online and look at old pictures of factory. You will see the factory shape has changed radically because you don't need a single shaft to drive the whole factory and build up. You could actually decentralize the motors all over the place, which led to the sort of chains of of production that we've seen and then Taylorism and so on and so forth. So it led a complete revolution in the way that organization actually work. And I don't think we've seen that yet with digital, we're starting to see uh, elements of it: how a company makes decision through data, how you can augment an employee through having a, a pile of tasks that that he or she used to do replaced by algorithm, and so on. But we, I think we're at the beginning of what this new shape will look like, and it's very hard to figure out exactly what what it, how it's going to pan out. But I think that's the big movement I see over the next, you know, ten to fifteen years is really organization readapting the structures and the management processes to be able to cope with this highly technology intensive way of doing business.
0: Now, you teach at at IMD, and IMD, you work primarily with executives, kind of people later in their careers. You also, at one point, advocate that some companies might want to create like an internal digital university to kind of educate their people, their managers about what it means to be a digital manager. And what exactly are the skills that you need to have to be, say, a digital manager? Do the universities and the business schools need to kind of rethink their curriculum and how how we teach things? I have a colleague who is a bit of a cynic, and he says that the MBA model that we have right now is designed to um, basically teach people how to run a nineteenth century railroad. And I think that it's a little harsh, <laughs> but I think we've made some progress since then. But do we how do we need to teach people differently at the kind of undergraduate or business school level so that they can be prepared for these changes
1: and that they don't need to be kind of re-educated later on i wouldn't be as harsh as your commentator that i think universities and been a school are making progress in terms of the teaching and and the way we teach leadership and management and transformation and so on and strategy because there are fundamental changes i grew up with michael porter as you probably did we had a very industry structure vision on how you actually craft strategies i'm not saying this is not uh, useful anymore it's very useful but If a business school carry on teaching only that, I think you're probably in a dark age because the notion of an industry can be challenged. I mean, take Amazon as just one example. The notion of value chain can be challenged because most companies are moving more to ecosystems. And this is the boundary story that we were talking earlier on most of the source of Value was either differentiation and better or low cost and cheaper. Uber is both cheaper and better in my book, at least in London. <laughs> and the advantage has moved more to scale and networks and data and analytics. So I think a lot of the stuff that I must admit that when I first looked at this field as as an economist, I would just say, you know, people were talking about the digital economy, the new economy, and I was saying, uh, yeah, you know, the fundamentals of the way the world work remain the same, and I've changed my mind a little bit because if you scratch below the surface, of course, you know there are rules that are still valid. So network effects are nothing new; we've known that for for years. But they are being applied today in an incredible way by certain platform owners. The notion of industry is being challenged in pretty much every old industry, particularly from new entrants even valuations i grew up i did my stint in MA and it was like uh, you know dcfs and then you did asset pricing and then the usual okay you added (laughs) the premium on it that that you're justified by the brand or whatever but today like how do you value these companies on assets it's impossible i mean the asset is a piece of software and the client base and so i think you're still valuing the future earnings and growth and things and with that comes the the situation we're in today where i don't envy vcs very often because if you look at what they're doing the successes are always the thing that people talk about but as we know and you're in the right part of the world to observe that on a daily basis many of these people never make it it's like when all my clients wanted to become digital platforms and i say guys probably maybe not your chances of succeeding these are very difficult and very expensive things to do and there successful platforms today that probably will never make a dime in their entire existence. So I think we're still, to some extent, learning. I think I'm pretty much convinced that some of these basic economics and and I think ways of thinking about strategy needs to evolve and therefore business school and university needs to adapt, but I, I still think we're learning a lot about the way that the economics of this platform work and sometimes we're learning the hard way, hence some of the fluctuation in valuation that's that's going on in some of the, and some of the so-called tech stocks, which sometimes are very physical stocks called that calling themselves technology companies, you know. So I think that's, to me, uh, the most important thing is really to realize that there is an evolution happening, um. And there are, by the way, fixed points that people forget, you know, I mean, like where you mentioned anthropologists earlier on your own, I mean, generally, behavioral science is still as important or should be still as important as it ever was because human beings are still human beings. So we've changed the platforms, we've changed the economics, we've changed the industries, but at the end of your, whether you're in B2B or B2C, at the end of the chain, there is a human being that still has emotion and feels happy in the morning or unhappy or, or whatever, these soft side which are actually the hardest thing, need to be understood through science, not just making it up. And that's also where I think we will see a, a lot of evolution in understanding is because traditionally this science to do with behavior was very often through observation and direct observation and focus groups, are a good example of that. I think today the data is giving us the ability to do, to understand what people are doing, how they're using our products how they're behaving without even doing any observation, because the real-time data is actually telling you exactly what's going on. So I think that's the kind of reason why I was talking earlier on about this change also of capabilities within certain departments, like marketing is a good example, where you need to also adapt to what's going on in the world out there, because it will demand very different capabilities.
0: Now, my old school, at one point in the late 90s, created a commerce major and uh, tried to create like an e-commerce department. And they very quickly got rid of it because they realized that pretty much commerce. Right? And <laughs> you mentioned that digital marketing. Well, that's just marketing. Do you have a plan for obsolescence at the Global Center for Digital Transformation at, at IMD? Do you think that ten, twenty years from now that this center will cease to exist because it's just going to get folded into? Kind of the normal way of doing business you know management marketing
1: operations yeah i hope so i hope so because that would mean that most companies have actually reached a, a level of maturity where the very notion of digital transformation as a program disappears because that's the way you do normal business i think we're still pretty a pretty long way uh, from there and i would dream to transform the center into a organizational innovation center where we can start figuring out, okay, now that we've got all these people tooled up to with their digital transformation, how do we actually get them to move as organization as we get them to move as leaders of people? And, you know, there are plenty of of issues that I think university are not all tackling today. Like, again, back to your very valid point about changing boundaries. How many times do I still see executive being very uncomfortable when they have to work with somebody who's not on the payroll right? and or groups of people that are not on the payroll. And guess what? You know, that's in the United States, it's reaching a level that's significant. 15 and above percent of the people are actually, that works for your organization and help you deliver your solutions are actually not on your payroll. I think this is going to increase tremendously for two reasons. One, because a lot of the skill set I was describing earlier on is still today, rare and expensive. So it's a better business decision to hire them. Like we hired lawyers, right? we lawyers have had bad press because they're expensive and, and they're not too many of them and of good ones at least. So you hire them on tap. I think we will see this model being developed for other sources of talents. And therefore, leaders need to feel comfortable having this kind of contingent workforce that may work for your company for six months and then they go do something else and learn. And there's loads of issues around security and IP and all sorts of stuff. But I think that's the direction of travel in terms of of how organization will develop this kind of skills. And and I think universities, you know, back to your your question, we cannot continue to think about the marketing department, the finance department, the uh, whatever, strategy department, because we know that the business problems are themed, right? So digital transformation is a good example. I mean, to actually teach digital transformation, we have cybersecurity people, people who are focused on certain geographies like China. We have uh, economists, we have HR and behavioral people, just to give the student a feel for what it takes to actually transform these organizations. And I think most business problem will be like that. I mean, take AI today, I mean, you know, it's not just about the technology and, and the people who build algorithms, you know, it's got loads of implication for how we run organization that needs to be tackled in this kind of cross-functional. So I think we need to reflect the way we're seeing those trends in businesses back into at least business schools. I'm not saying every university, but at least for the business school that pretends to help leaders lead better, we need to integrate that and design programs that are much more cross-functional and versatile than what we had in the past like a marketing program or whatever
0: well i certainly agree with that dda plenty of food for thought here um this book leading digital still around and also on your website imd website plenty of other additional material that you've written thank you so much for joining me no problem my pleasure thank you for tuning in to the unsiloed podcast If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.